Now hear God's holy word from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, continuing our study in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word, and we ask that today, by your Holy Spirit, you would lead us into truth. I pray that you would deliver us from all error, deliver us from all distraction, help us to pay attention to the words that you have given us here, and make me an able and articulate teacher of these things. Guide us through this. By your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Often, a little bit of knowledge is worse than no knowledge of all, at all. A little bit of knowledge is worse than no knowledge at all. Sometimes, just a little bit of information is just enough to get you in trouble, just enough to be dangerous. In the early days of personal computers and when computers were being used more and more in the workplace, there was always a guy in the office who knew just a little bit about computers, just enough to crash everything and shut down the entire office for the day and bring the whole company to a complete stop, right? I mean, he knew, format the C drive, that does something, right? I mean, that, that, that'll do something. Uh, that's what you need to do. Having a little bit of knowledge about something can cause a whole lot of a whole lot of trouble. Having a little bit of knowledge about electricity is almost scarier than having no knowledge about electricity. I would rather know nothing than to know a little bit and to uh, electrify myself. You, you may have at one point used the shade tree mechanic who says, you know, yeah, I can change your water pump and, and, I, can, uh, and I can do that for less money than the garage would charge. But, but you get the car back from the shade tree mechanic who knows just a little bit about cars and you get it back and none of your lights work and your AC's blowing hot air because he knows a little bit about cars. We're, we're apt to have, though, with just a little bit of knowledge, we're apt to, apt to have such a high estimation of our own talents and high estimation of our own gifts and abilities that we fail to take account of our weaknesses. We, we're so proud of our strengths that we fail to factor in our weaknesses. And because of that, we can quickly get deep into trouble and yet be afraid to admit that we really don't know what we're doing. In this next section, Paul addresses Corinthian believers who knew just enough 
to be dangerous. They had just a little bit of knowledge. They were right about a few things regarding their freedom in Christ, but they were using that freedom and they were using that knowledge in a damaging way. They had weaponized their liberty in Christ to damage and hurt the rest of the church. They were living as if nothing they did affected anybody else. In the name of liberty, they're doing their own thing. No matter how it was perceived by the world and no matter how their actions hurt uh, the newer and weaker converts to the Christian faith. So some of them had written Paul about this very controversial issue regarding whether it was okay to eat meat that had been offered to idols. Now, in the name of Christian liberty, some of them were apparently eating in the pagan temples where the animals were being sacrificed before an idol. And, and when the meal was, when, when the animal was sacrificed before the idol, the meat is divided up between those in attendance there and, and everyone feasts. And the question arises, is that right or is that wrong? Can a Christian attend a feast at a pagan temple? Some, some other people were uh, abstaining from meat altogether with the fear that perhaps somewhere along the way, at some point, that that animal might have been sacrificed in the name of a pagan deity. Was that kind of conscientiousness necessary to go full vegetarian in the fear that sometime and somewhere this animal might have been sacrificed uh, to a pagan god? Uh, further, some very new Christians who had been participating in ritual pagan sacrifices all their lives, they held on to this idea, even as they were becoming Christians, they held on to this idea that there was some value or some benefit to continuing participating in these sacrifices. Yeah, I know Jesus and I submit to Jesus, but I'm still afraid of what Zeus might do to me if I don't give him his due honor. I'm, I'm still afraid of what these other gods might do to me or might get me. And so maybe I hold on to this practice and I can still serve Jesus. So you see, there were a, a number, a multitude of, of positions on this very controversial issue. And, and this boils over to the point that they ask Paul, what are we doing here? What are we supposed to do? Now, before we try to answer all those questions for them, we, we first have to stop and understand the cultural context. What is going on here? These are, these are very foreign practices for us, and it's hard to get a grip on the social pressures that went along with these practices, and, and even the way that the government, the, uh, the, the Roman government, endorsed all these rituals so that this is just what it means to be a Corinthian. This is just what we do and how we do it. It was so embedded in their DNA as Greeks to participate in these things. This is what we do. So how is a Christian in first century Greece supposed to respond to these practices? Well, first we have to understand it was a social practice, an accepted social practice for anyone to take their meals at a pagan temple or in some other place associated with an idol. Most of the pagan temples had places for food preparation and they had seating areas for people to eat. Each town or city had lots of shrines to various gods and goddesses and in Paul's day there were even shrines to the emperor and his family. People would visit these various shrines on big occasions and they would bring animals to, to celebrate birthdays or weddings or recovery from sickness. Anytime there was something to celebrate, they would bring a sacrifice 
any kind of special occasion, public or private, when people came together socially, this was the kind of event where a sacrifice to a god was appropriate, and they often did it. So imagine if all of your neighbors, for every birthday, for any anniversary, for any big wedding celebration, for any time they did some big business deal or something very good went on, they had a great harvest, they, they take this animal, they sacrifice it, they have a great big cookout there, and you're invited, and you're expected to come. And if you show up, and if you hang out, and if you don't eat, well, that's offensive to your host. This is the social pressure that goes with this practice. So a decision to have nothing to do, it's very easy for us to say, oh, that's simple, you never go again, that's fine. But you have to understand the context for them. To cut yourself off from that world was to cut yourself off from most social contact from your unbelieving family and friends and neighbors because that's where you network that's where you make deals that's where you build friendships that's where you're becoming part of the community and participating in the community that's where the party is that's where life is so most people this is another factor especially poor people only got to eat meat when it uh, came as part of a pagan religious celebration. We eat meat all the time. We eat meat three times a day. That is extremely weird in human history that we eat as much. I love it. I, I mean, I bacon three times a day. I mean, it's fine. It's good. But it's, it's weird and it's not normal in human history for people to eat as much meat as we do. In, uh, in ancient cultures and especially poor people, they almost never got to eat meat. They never got animal protein in that way. And so if they did get to eat it, it was usually at a pagan religious celebration. So you can imagine not wanting to miss out on what little bit of meat was available to you, even if it was offered as part of a, a, a pagan feast. So when an animal was brought to the shrine, usually by a well-to-do family, it would be butchered and roasted, and the family, the celebrating family, would have a meal with that animal as the main course. But there was always more meat than the family could eat. So the priests would get some, and their friends and other family would come to the temple to share the food, which would be offered to the god. And, and even that would fail to use up all of the animal. So the priests would take what was left over and they would sell it in the meat market. So when you think of a pagan temple, think of a place with uh, a kitchen, a grill, some tables set up where you could sit and feast, and also a meat market off to the side where what is left over is going to be sold to, so people can take it home and, and eat it there as well. The result of all this is that almost all the meat available to you anywhere in the city, unless you raised it yourself, all of the meat available would have been offered to a god at some point as a sacrifice. So that means some city-dwelling Jews in the ancient world, um, if you don't have your own butcher, you don't butcher your own meat, you don't raise your own animals, then you just refuse to eat meat at all. Uh, the, the, the Jews in, in this climate didn't want to have anything to do with the worship of idols, even if it means that they were several steps uh, removed from the whole process, they still didn't want to do, have anything to do with it, and so they abstained completely from meat. 
At the same time, you can also put yourself in the mindset of a, of a Christian in this time, in this period, knowing that Jesus is king and Jesus is bringing everything in submission to himself. Jesus is the king of kings. And therefore, how can there possibly be any harm in sitting in front of a, a block of wood or a block of stone and, and eating your, you know, pulled uh, pork sandwich or, or your, or your uh, roast beef? How could there be anything wrong with that? You could sit there in front of the idol and you could hum Psalm 135 as you ate. You could say mouths they have but do not speak, eyes they have but do not see. There's just a block of wood. What difference does it make if this animal that I'm now enjoying had been offered to this non-existent deity? You can understand how you could get to that point. But a few thorny questions come out of this. First, is it okay to go to the temple to eat? And if so, what are the ramifications of that? Secondly, what if you don't go to the temple to eat, but you get the meat that is sold in the butcher shop off to the side, which was previously part of a sacrifice? This is more than a thought experiment. This is more than a casual inquiry. You see, Again, if you take a strong position against eating this meat, you're going to have to make serious adjustments to your way of life. You're going to have to either not eat meat at all or find another source for it. And not only that, you are cutting yourself off from joining your neighbors in their feasting. You are, you are cutting off those social uh, courtesies that go with that. Well, these are very important questions for this church. But before Paul can even begin answering these questions, he pulls all the way back and he, and, and he approaches the primary issue here, which is love and edification of the brethren. You want to know these answers and you've got these questions about food and how and where we can eat. I want to pull you all the way down to the foundation and say, what are we doing with all things and, and how are we living in such a way to live for other people, to live for our our fellow Christians and for the world. These are the first things that we have to consider. And so he begins, and all we're going to do is read chapter 8 today uh, uh, that I read just a few minutes ago, and now we'll walk through it. Uh, the first three verses. He says, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Paul has repeatedly admonished them for their arrogant Greek attitude toward uh, their own wisdom, their confidence in their knowledge. Uh, throughout the first several uh, chapters of this letter, he's focused on their, their own puffed up sense of, 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 of self-confidence in, in what they know. And he keeps popping these balloons because you don't know everything that you think you know. You are way too arrogant and you're way overconfident because what you actually know is very little. And so he says, edification of others is what we're after, not the puffing up of our own reputation or status. Therefore, love is superior to knowledge. He's not rejecting the importance of sound doctrine or learning the things of Christ. That's not what he's saying. But, but he's, he's undermining this singular pursuit of knowledge that's so popular among the Greeks. Knowledge by itself, if it isn't tempered by love, results in 
uh, uh, unsympathetic conceit and pride. And even though we've all known eggheads, right? We've all known bookworms who are so full of knowledge that they have no uh, social skills. They have, they have no uh, re- relationship uh, uh, knowledge. There, there's nothing that they, they don't know how to walk or speak or, or basic common courtesies. They don't know this. Knowledge by itself is dangerous. Knowledge is destructive, especially if it's just a little bit of knowledge. And that's what they have. They have just a little bit. So knowledge is not all that Christians pursue. You get the sense that these Christians who are going to the idol feast were doing it with a kind of pride in their liberty. We know what we're doing. I mean, I know what I'm getting myself into here. There are some recent converts, though, who are still nervous about it. There are are some who have one foot left over in the pagan world, thinking that there's still some benefits here. The Jews would have been likely opposed to the whole thing. But rather than deferring to his brothers who are in different places, rather than thinking how his, his involvement in the temple is affecting them, the one with knowledge would boldly say, I know that the idols are powerless and this doesn't mean anything. What I'm doing here doesn't mean anything and there's no possible way that I could be sinning here. My heart and my mind are covered in titanium. I am impervious to evil influences and I think it's really foolish for anyone to suggest that somehow I'm gonna be tempted to sin here. I know what I believe, I know what I'm doing. And Paul writes to this guy and he says, If anyone thinks he knows anything, he's got a lot to learn. If you think you know a whole lot, there's one thing you don't know, and that's you don't know how little you know. For the humble student, the more you study and the more you learn, you find out that there's a whole lot that you don't know. Increasing knowledge is a way of increasing awareness of your ignorance. Uh, Some people who know the least know it the loudest right? And so the, the more uh, that you, you increase in understanding and knowledge, uh, the more you know that the, there's less that you, less that you know. The, the more that you grow in understanding and awareness, uh, the more you understand your own ignorance. And Paul is saying that there's no point in priding ourselves on what is partial and incomplete. If you want to talk about knowledge, then what is most vital is not what we know, but who knows us? That's what he says in verse three. If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Now, now to the questions at hand, he concedes the point that those who have claimed to have knowledge um, were right. They, they are right. Idols are nothing. There is no God but one. Verse four. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are other so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. An idol is nothing, he says. Now let's not misunderstand when he says an idol is nothing. Paul believed in the spiritual reality, the the, the uh, demonic, evil, spiritual reality behind pagan idolatry. 
He knows that idolaters are really worshiping demons. Later on in this very same epistle, in just a couple chapters, he's going to say, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. And I don't want you to have any fellowship with demons. So don't participate in that. So when Paul says that idols are nothing in this verse, he's not denying the the, uh, demonic influences on idolatry. Instead, he's comparing idols to the glory and honor of the true God and his son, Jesus Christ. So compared to Jesus, the idols are nothing. Compared to Jesus, the demons are nothing. They ought not to be feared. Christians have no need to be superstitious or to worry about what might happen if they fail to please an idol, if they fail to uh, please a demon, if they fail to pick up a penny, or, or if a black cat crosses their path, or if they walk under a ladder. All of these things are in the same category of superstition. Have no fear on these things. As uh, the Apostle John would write, there is one, uh, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And so this is how Paul says this. Even if there are so-called gods... Yet for us, there is one one God. It's easy to see why some believers at Corinth didn't hesitate to eat the food that had been dedicated to idols because as far as they were concerned, the pagan rituals were insignificant and kind of silly. The supremacy of Christ, they knew, overrules whatever influence these lower gods have. and, And Jesus nullifies any kind of significance of the pagan sacrifices. And so Paul concedes that. He says all of that. You're right. The idols are nothing. This is completely in line with what the scriptures teach. You are right, except there's a greater right than being right. There's a deeper right than being right. You see, even if we solve a problem on a logical level, that doesn't mean the problem is solved on a relational level or a practical level. It's just because you work something out logically doesn't mean it's worked out. If you're confident in your ability to think rationally and logically, be prepared to be frustrated when you've argued your point logically and rationally and you clearly lay it out and people still don't agree with you. Why? It's because there's more to it than logic. We can't argue people out of bad ideas or bad practices in many cases, but, but sometimes love dictates that we don't even try to argue them out of it. There are other routes besides argumentation, like patience and forbearance and leading by example, giving people time to grow and get there on their own, and even living cordially with disagreement. Those are all possibilities as well. So Paul says, we know this. Yeah, we know it. An idol is nothing, but not everybody knows that. In fact, there are still some people in the church who've just come out of paganism who still regard idols as something. You know they're nothing. There are people sitting next to you in church who think that they're something, and we need to account for that. And the fact that they're nothing hasn't yet changed their mind. Paul says this, we know an idol is nothing, but we still have to live in forbearance with the one who doesn't know that. So in verse 7 he says, However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with the consciousness of the idol, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. Some people were so accustomed to thinking that, that these idols have some kind of real power some kind of real superstitious power, that they couldn't shake off these thoughts. You could tell that these new Christians in Corinth, you could tell them it's foolish to think that there's something going on with this idol. 
But that's going to take a while to sink in. Paul says when some people eat meat at their temple, their long-held beliefs about idols leads them to think that in some way they're still serving this God. And, and, so, and so if they do this, they do it with a weak or injured conscience. What a strong Christian could do without flinching is a sin to a weaker brother. The strong Christian might have held the opinion that, that, you know what, Christians ought to assert their freedom and we ought to purposely eat what has been offered to an idol, demonstrating to everybody that I have a full understanding that this idol is nothing. Watch me. I'm going to eat this and I'm not going to participate in any of the other liturgy or any of the other rituals and I am full and complete and mature in Christ. Watch how mature I am as I go into this uh, idolatrous place and eat this. And, and then turn to the weaker brother and say, if your guilty conscience is holding you back, then you're showing you don't have a full understanding of the gospel. You ought to be able to go with me in there and understand your strength and position in Christ. So in other words, you're a better Christian if you eat at the temple and you're a better Christian than the one who doesn't eat because you are living out the gospel. You are the mature Christian. Well, Paul deflates that as well. He turns around and he says, Food doesn't commend us to God. Eating doesn't make us any better. Not eating doesn't make us any worse. But this is important, verse 9. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Paul is not objecting to the theological reasoning of the knowledgeable ones. He has a problem with the way that they're using their knowledge. He has a pastoral concern for the people with a weak conscience. And so he asks the stronger to control their behavior so that they might not become a stumbling block to the weak. So the message is this, sure, we have freedom and maturity in Jesus, but that isn't a freedom to serve ourselves. That's not a freedom to just have fun, to do whatever pleases the flesh. We are freed from the dietary laws. We're freed from the ceremonial and cleanliness laws of the Old Testament, but we're freed from those so that we can better serve God and man. My freedoms don't begin and end with me. Christian liberty is not a blanket justification to eat everything and drink everything and watch everything and do everything. I'm given freedom so that I can serve others and so that I can restrain that freedom when it threatens to hurt others. So, so Paul, then what might exactly happen? What are you afraid is going to happen if a weaker brother sees you eating in an idol's temple? Well, the weaker one who thinks that there's still some spiritual value in this, some, some value to pleasing the gods, he'll continue his idolatrous practice. See, he hasn't made the steps that you have made in thinking through the lordship of Jesus over all these things. And so you're actually aiding and abetting his idolatry because he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he hasn't walked with you through this and he just sees you going. He still thinks it's worth something and he's going to practice idolatry. See, these weak brothers, the guys that Paul refers to as the weaker brother, they're, they're weak in the sense that they, they're not mature in Christ, but they're actually strong in the practice of idolatry. They knew what went on in those shrines. And if you could put yourself in that context, in that environment, and think what it must have been like to bring a sacrifice to a pagan temple in the first century 
in Greece, that, that dark sense of mystery and fear, that sense that in feasting at a God's table, you're actually eating and drinking that God's power that you're taking the life of that God to be your own life. And then following from there, that, that abuse of strong drink and other substances, that casting off of moral restraint around the prostitutes who hung around these, these places who are readily available. Thinking that in all of this, you are somehow stirring up the attention of the God to bless you favorably, to abet and to push back his wrath for just another day, another week, so that he might not cause you any trouble. Imagine living in this dark world of paganism for 30, 40, 50 years, sensing the very real power, the demonic power that these things have, it would be so difficult coming into the church to separate your head and your heart from this whole thing. Just the smells of the place, just the sounds of the temple as you walk past would be enough to bring all of that rushing right back to you. You would be confronted by a world of temptations and a world of feelings and emotions that you'd have to deal with all over again. It could take years of teaching and prayer and wise help to get you past all of that. Now, imagine having begun the work to separate yourself from that, to cut it off completely, that lifestyle, feeling as if you had been rescued from the world of darkness and, and that you're being brought into the light. And now you're in the church and now you see respected church members trekking right back into that same place to eat and drink without explaining anything to you. All they say is, yeah, we have knowledge and we know that this is okay. And they just dismiss your concerns as silliness because you know that world and you know, oh, I know what goes on in there and I don't want anything to do with it. That would really hurt the progress that I've made in Christ. They, they never make an effort for you to separate the meal from the cult. So you see them going in there and you see them thinking partic they're participating in everything that goes with it. In your mind, you see them doing what you have grown up doing. These are the people for whom Paul is concerned. So as we read this, don't simply dismiss them as weaker, as if they're, you know, know-nothings or, or mouth breathers, or they just fell off a turnip truck and they just don't know too much about the gospel. Don't, don't simply dismiss. This is the weaker brother, the weaker brother who came out of this temple environment and who now says, I don't know why respectable members of my church are going over there and eating. What is going on? Um, so... So some of these, and, and, and a category of, of these people, it seems, um, are thinking, well, they're going in there to pray to Caesar and Zeus, and they also pray to the Lord Jesus on the Lord's day. So that, I guess that's what Christians do. I guess we, we worship all the gods. Uh, then it's okay for me to put Zeus and Caesar and Jesus all in the same level. You see, in this, this is how the freedom of the stronger destroys the weaker. Verse 11, And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. When you sin against your brothers this way, you are sinning against Christ. Your brothers are in Christ. And so to injure them is to injure Jesus, is to injure the body of Christ. So what is the solution? Verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat 
lest I make my brother stumble. You may have a right to eat this meat, but you don't have to exercise that right. You aren't going to die if you don't exercise that right. You may have the freedom, but is it worth exercising this freedom if it's going to lure the weaker brother back into that old pagan life? Now, in the next chapter, he's going to go off-road for a little bit and come back to this topic, but he's going to go off-road and he's going to talk about things he sacrificed and things he's given up. When he's asking them to give up this practice of going to the temple to eat, he's going to say, well, there's some things I've given up. They're freedoms that I have deferred for the sake of the church and the work of the ministry. And he's going to come back to this topic and answer these questions. Is it okay to eat in the temple? Is it okay to eat meat offered to idols anywhere? And we might be shocked by his final answers. If you haven't read ahead, this, this champion of liberty, this man who refused uh, for the Greek Titus to be circumcised to please the Jews, uh, this apostle who stood up to the Judaizers, and even Paul stood up to Peter himself. Do you know what his conclusion is? His conclusion is, don't go to the temples to eat anymore. Don't do it. I know your argument. I know your rationale. I know what you're thinking. You've got some good ideas, but don't do it. Now, the Jerusalem council already spoke to this back in Acts chapter 15, when questions were coming up, how Gentiles should be incorporated into the church. And they were considering what Jewish traditions should we keep? Which one should we change? Which, which should not be required? James and the council in Jerusalem came up with a very short list of commands, but one of them on that list was don't eat things offered to idols. It came up twice in Revelation and the messages to the seven churches. Pergamum and Thyatira were both rebuked for, for permitting this practice. This was a highly charged issue in the early church, and the instruction is repeatedly, don't participate in idol worship. But, but Paul's going to take, he's going to go deeper on the question, well, can you, meet, eat, can you eat the meat that was sold in the market or eat meat anywhere for that matter, not knowing where it came from? And what Paul's answer to that is going to be is, is eat it, but don't ask where it came from. Eat with a clear conscience. Don't worry about it. Everything belongs to the Lord. So don't let your mind be troubled with it. Give thanks and eat it. If someone invites you over to supper and you sit down to eat and there's meat on the table, don't ask, was this offered to an idol? Don't ask that, just eat it. But if someone tells you where it came from, if they say, oh yeah, I got this the other day. We had a big party for Mercury and this was, uh, this was sacrificed to Mercury. And if they make a point of letting you know where it came from, then abstain. That's what you do. You, you push back your plate and you push back your chair. It's very simple. Paul's not making extra rules. He's just expanding upon the Jerusalem Council's conclusions uh, and saying, here's how you've got to navigate this issue. Don't eat at the temple. You can eat meat unless somebody says this was offered to an idol, and then you can't. You've got to say no. Well, how does this help us? What does this do for us in 2019? We don't have shrines with idols. We don't have ritual sacrifices and meals around the altar. And so it seems pretty easy for us to comply with this instruction. Okay, we got it. Don't eat meat offered to idols. Good, good deal. We're, we're good on that one, Lord. But I think we can make a couple of applications. But I first want to avoid making a bad application. We have to be clear that in this context, the weaker brother, who is that? 
That is someone who just came from the world of paganism and someone who might be seriously affected by the appearance of new Christian brothers doing the same things and going to the same places that he just separated from. He's just been pulled out of the fire and he sees his brothers walking right back into this place and then he strolls back in and his heart is entwined by all of these idolatrous practices and he goes right back into the life that he just came out of and that your behavior helped him do that. That's the weaker, that's the weaker brother. Especially if the stronger brother does this with this cavalier attitude and never tries to teach him about the distinctions they're making, that's the weaker brother. He might revert to paganism if he follows your example. His soul and his eternity is at stake. However, I've often heard this kind of weaker brother argument used and pulled out of context that anyone who ever disagrees with anything ever, uh, anybody who disagrees with what we're doing, our legitimate exercises of Christian liberty, they're the, they're the weaker brother. So, so you could be in church all your life. You could have several copies of the Bible sitting around your house. You could listen to thousands of sermons. And you could still not agree that it's a Christian's liberty to enjoy wine. That's fine. You can, you can believe that. But, but that doesn't make you a weaker brother. Maybe you're a poorly taught brother or someone who doesn't agree with my conclusions. But, but we all don't have to modify our behavior out of some worry that you're going to convert back to paganism if you see us drink wine. So, so Christians who disagree with certain applications of Christian liberty frequently refer to themselves as the weaker brother. I'm the weaker brother here, and you're making me stumble. And what I don't understand is how can you admit to being the weaker brother? I don't understand how you can call yourself that. Doesn't that imply that you need to mature? You need to become the stronger brother. Thank you for admitting that you're the weaker brother. Now mature, now grow up. The weaker brother can't be that way all of his life. He needs to become the stronger brother eventually. And that's not just applicable for wine. It's applicable in a thousand directions where, where people draw lines for themselves differently from where other people do. That doesn't make you a weaker brother. That means we disagree on some application of Christian liberty and our use of our liberty in Christ. So, so Paul preaches this gospel of freedom that the gospel is about the lordship of Jesus over everything. There's no way that what he's teaching here is that, the, that in the church the mature are permanently shackled by the immature and that if there's just one person in the church that doesn't like something, that we all have to wait around until they get on board. That's not deference to the weaker brother. That's not it. But the strong must always act toward the weak with patience and love. And love often includes, almost always includes, instruction. So, so putting that aside, today, how do we make application? There are no temptations toward literal sacrificing in literal pagan temples today, literally eating meat offered to idols. But there are so many situations where these same principles apply. What we eat and what we drink and where we go and what we buy and where we buy it are still at the center of hot debates in the church. We still have the question today of whether we're participating in evil when we spend our time and we spend our money with businesses and entertainments that take public positions against the gospel. If a business has taken a public position against something that God has said, and that is their, uh, that is their identity, 
Are we sinning by doing business with them? Must we avoid the department store with the rainbow flag out front? Or are we permitted to roll our eyes and carry on with our day? Does shopping here or not shopping there commend us to God? Well, well, without getting too far into the weeds, we can summarize Paul's teaching this way. There are certain ways of doing business that affirm things that God hates and that uh, participate in those evil works. So, so going to the temple and eating before the idol with idolaters is prohibited. In the same way, going out of your way to support a business and hanging around a place that openly supports evil, acting as if it doesn't matter, acting, acting as if your heart and your head are, are, are covered in titanium, it's, it's not going to rub off on me, that's prohibited. Is, is doing this thing openly automatically associated with evil in the kingdom of darkness, then, then it's off limits if it's openly associated with evil. However, eating meat without asking where it came from is not prohibited. So there are ways of living and doing business that says Jesus is Lord, and even this broken institution can be used in some way to his glory and to my benefit when I give thanks to him for it, because the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof. So I can, I can enjoy or do or use this thing. So if what I need is at the store that makes really dumb, wicked public announcements on social issues, if what I need is at that store that does dumb things and uh, I, I can't do without it, well, I'll have to find a way to do without it if there's any chance that it hurts my Christian testimony. But if I go get the thing I need with clear conscience and no one knows and no one cares and no one's making an automatic association with their ethics and mine, I haven't sinned. I haven't sinned. Um, ever since the 90s, is about when I've been paying attention, there have been Christian outfits and organizations that have been big on not spending money and boycotting everything all the time. We're just not spending our money here or there. And I wonder, what does that leave? Where, where are you left if you, if, if, if you um, uh, boycott everything that, that disagrees with you? Um, w w does God hold us accountable for how the money that we spend gets used after it leaves our pocket? And no, the wicked are in rebellion. They get judged. But I'm not responsible for everything that's done with my dollar after I've spent it. You see, Jesus commended the widow for putting her little amount in the collection box. Jesus commended the widow. In the same breath, he condemns the temple. The, the temple's being judged and the people who are running it are being judged. The widow is commended. She's not participating in their wickedness by her act of obedience to God. And so there's something of a, of, of a paradigm there that I think controls and, and helps us figure this out. Now the issues get more and more complicated when it comes to working for companies that promote evil or doing business as a company with another business that affirms wickedness. And every one of those situations calls for wisdom. But I'm gonna wrap it up with this thought. Often when you bring up questions of whether a Christian can do this or that, someone will say, well, there's not really a law it's just a matter of wisdom. Okay, well, if it's a matter of wisdom, 
Let's apply wisdom. Let's actually behave wisely. Because in many applications of Christian liberty, you hardly ever hear anybody ever say no to anything in the name of Christian liberty. You can say yes to things in the name of Christian liberty. Paul also now here in the name of Christian liberty says no, don't eat in the pagan temple. Sometimes wisdom says no. Here Paul says no, don't eat at the temple. If you eat the meat, eat it at home. That's an application of wisdom. So saying something is a wisdom issue is not the end of the conversation. Okay, it's a wisdom issue. Let's act in wisdom and let's walk in faith. Christian liberty is the liberty to sometimes say no. Maybe even often we say no. Christian liberty is the liberty to accept fellow, faithful, thoughtful Christians who are coming down on issues in different ways than we, patiently forbearing in mutual uh, grace and, and love with each other. Christian liberty is not, however, just a blank check to go do whatever I want to do, drink whatever I want to drink, smoke whatever I want to smoke, eat whatever, go wherever, screaming, we're not under grace. I'm sorry, we're not under law, we're under grace. We're not under law, we're, we're under grace. Just saying that whole, whole time, we're under grace, not the law. We're given liberty under Jesus in order to have the flexibility to live out the gospel in various contexts with shifting challenges, but it's always focused outward. How is this edifying? How do I give thanks to God for this? How can I use this to serve my neighbor and my brother? And if it doesn't do any of that, if only I am being served, if only I am being comforted at the expense of my brother, then I also have the liberty to drop it. There's so much more to say. Paul's going to spend the next three chapters talking about these things. He's going to be sticking with this, and we'll continue to explore it and build on this foundation in coming weeks. For now, let us pray. Father, we praise you for your word, and we ask you by your spirit to give us wisdom to make these calls that we must make navigating a very complicated and difficult world that you've put us in. There are all kinds of questions that run along the same paths as the questions that Paul is dealing with here. So by your spirit, help us to meditate on these things and make right applications as we are called and commanded. So Father, strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.